From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is BPR News Presents The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, the news director at BPR, and thanks for joining us. I don't know about you, but I'm out of superlatives for the week and really the whole year, if we're being honest. So in the next hour, we'll just be straightforward in how we tackle three topics front and center in Western North Carolina. Later, we will actually talk about something other than the election, how the sale of Mission Health went down, and then a charter school that seeks to reverse the racial achievement gap with students in the city of Asheville. But first, yes, the election. Votes are still being counted in North Carolina, and as long as that is happening, we will avoid talking polls and how wrong or right they may have been. What we will discuss with our political analyst, Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University, is how much this election showed us that partisanship still rules the day. Partisanship is a hell of a drug, and we've seen more evidence of that in 2020. So, you know, look at our 11th congressional district race, for example. I mean, we expected before we knew the candidates or anything else, this would be a pretty heavily Republican district. A lot of us were speculating throughout the election that because of all the twists and turns the election took, allegations against Madison Cawthorn and everything else, that maybe partisanship wouldn't play as strong a role. We'd have some people cross over. Turns out once at least most of the votes are counted, it appears that it was partisanship that took the day. So I think this election just gives me more evidence that we are in the most partisan polarized time since the American Civil War. And in Western North Carolina, that's in really clear view between Buncombe County, the largest or the most populous jurisdiction in the region, and the rest of the region. So let's talk about that. Madison Cawthorn lost by 20 points in Buncombe County. But he won the rest of the district of the 11th district, the other 17 counties, almost two to one. Um, How one, how is he essentially going to be able to represent a district where he's where where he didn't get the votes in the largest or the most populous jurisdiction? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be difficult, right? And so right out of the gate, he he sent out um, a statement that, you know, the statement was very um, kind of anti-polarization, right? Come together and we're going to govern. I'm here to represent everybody. Standard stuff, but the kind of stuff that you want to see. Uh, but unfortunately, that was met um, within the same hour with the what I'm calling the tweet heard around the world, which was uh, where he tweeted out, um, cry more lib. And so I think that's going to be really difficult, right? I, I think if, if he is sending out a statement that says, I'm trying to work with everybody, and then he's sending out a cry more lib tweet, then it's going to be very difficult to govern. And this is already a difficult district to govern. Asheville is arguably the most liberal city in North Carolina, inarguably the most liberal city in Western North Carolina. Um, and you've got to represent Asheville and you've got to represent Robbinsville at the same time. So for any member of Congress, for any representative, this is a, a heavy lift. And I think some of the signals we're getting from Madison Cawthorn suggest that it may be a heavier lift for him even than most. And it is something I think all of us have to get used to again, as because of the districts previously, Asheville was not represented uh, by one com- person of Congress It is now doing that. So that's something for everybody to get used to again, is that the entire district through the entire region is now under one congressperson. Yeah, that's exactly right. Redistricting has is, is had a huge impact on our 
on our region, um, right? So the 10th congressional district, of course, Patrick McHenry has now moved. Uh, there's actually a whole other district in between us and Patrick McHenry, right? So the fifth has moved in. All of Asheville, all of Buncombe counties in the 11th. This is not the same district that Heath Shuler represented, but it looks more like that district than the district that Mark Meadows represented. So the challenge facing Cawthorn is a challenge that Mark Meadows never faced. Mark Meadows never had to represent the city of Asheville and the bright blue dot in the middle of this big red region. Um, and, and I think this this division is growing, right? And so I think Buncombe County is growing a darker shade of blue and the rest of Western North Carolina is really growing a, a darker shade of red. So we'll start in Buncombe County, but we're going to go eventually West and go into some, some of the local districts, uh, lo- local elections that uh, took place this week, but we'll start in Buncombe County. And again, uh, Republicans, uh, it was a close, uh, it was four, three on the board still is, but it will not be once the new board is swor- sworn in. So let's talk about that first. And the, and the person whose role in this is actually pretty large is going back or is actually already back in the general assembly, but is certainly going back now for a full term. And that is Tim Moffat. So tell us about him. And now that he's representing a, a district that is not where he previously represented in the general assembly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Tim Moffat, um, some folks will probably remember used to, to represent, um, part of Buncombe County and the um, in our General Assembly, the lower house of the General Assembly. He had a really tight race against Brian Turner. Brian Turner eventually won. This was uh, a race that at least statewide made some big headlines because over a million dollars were raised for this seat that pays $13,951 a year. Um, while Moffitt was in office, he um, you know, has all sorts of legislation to talk about, but one is that he uh, pushed to tie Buncombe County's lines to uh, uh, county commission lines to the lines uh, that are drawn by the General Assembly, okay, so that they would overlay on top of each other. When the lines were redrawn in the last lawsuit and the last litigation, that then changed the Buncombe County lines. And Tim Moffitt is now back in, but from uh, a different chamber and from a different seat. And so, uh, you know, what's old is new again in North Carolina politics, and, and people need to be re-familiarize themselves with Tim Moffat. So now as Tim Moffat represents the Henderson County District, previously represented by Chuck McGrady in Buncombe County this week with those new lines and uh, that were up, the Democrats swept all four county commission elections rather easily and will now have a six to one edge on the board. So this is significant in a way because Buncombe County, at least under the prior districts, it was advantageous to Republicans and it kept it pretty close. Now it is not. That's exactly right. And I think it also illustrates right this theme that we've been talking about with Buncombe looking increasingly different. I think those folks who've been around for a while will remember, you know, kind of it was a story for all about Asheville becoming much more liberal, of course. But the idea was maybe this is happening to Asheville, but the rest of Buncombe County perhaps isn't quite as liberal, right? That Asheville is fundamentally different than the county. And at least in terms of representation, what we're starting to see is the county is also growing bluer and bluer. So instead of being an Asheville versus Western North Carolina divide, I think we're starting to see Buncombe County be very different than the rest of Western North Carolina. And it is certainly something for us to look at as we go on, because there will be other parts of this, too. If the election results hold, we're still waiting for the final results to uh, for the final ballots to be counted. But right now, under the under what is here now uh, or under what has been counted thus far, Asheville will have an all female city council, which is quite significant to say, too, in, again, this very polarized district. Um, Yeah. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's I mean, it's 
it's historic, right? I mean, this is a this is a really big deal, and and we know just to sort of back up a little bit or, or give some bigger picture, we know that women are, are vastly underrepresented in American politics. And that is true at the federal level. That's true at the state level. And that's actually true at the local level, too. So a few years ago, I got interested in this question. I thought, well, maybe representation looks better at the local level for women. And if we're just sort of patient, that we'll see this kind of rise up and eventually get something closer to parity. And it turns out that's not really true. So even at the county commission level, only about one in every five or one in every four county commissioners is a woman. So what that means is at every level of government, women are underrepresented. So the fact that now we're looking at an Asheville City Council that is entirely female is noteworthy and important. And I think also highlights some of the uh, gender gap that we're seeing between parties and now within the region. Going next to Transylvania County, earlier this year, commissioners there decided they were no longer going to be affiliated officially with a party. Now, that's significant. Uh, you know, Something like Asheville City Council is officially nonpartisan, but at the county level uh, across North Carolina, it is partisan. You see Democrats, you see Republicans. So commissioners there this year decided they were not going to be affiliated anymore. They wanted to be unaffiliated, not tied to a party. They all ran for re-election this year in Transylvania County. How did it go for them? Uh, it did not go well. And so this was really a race to watch, I think, throughout the state. So I know we've talked over the years and over this election cycle about the increasing number of unaffiliated voters in the state of North Carolina. It's the second largest registration group. It's already the largest in many of our Western North Carolina counties. And so a lot of people looked at this Transylvania County Commission race as kind of a test case. All right, we've got a lot of these voters that are unaffiliated. What happens if some policymakers do it? We thought, okay, well, Maybe people running for the first time will have a hard time, but if they're already in office and they're incumbents, then maybe that's a way that we can get more unaffiliated representation in office. And it turns out that is not what happened, that despite the uh, all the attention that was put on this race, uh, all three of the unaffiliated folks running for um running for office lost. And so I think it really highlights, again, this bigger theme we've been talking about for the last few minutes, that partisanship still rules the day. Perhaps partisanship rules the day even more than it used to, even at a time where a lot of voters are trying to signal that perhaps they're not so happy with that. Right. And we've talked about this uh, numerous times, the increase in the unaffiliated voter in North Carolina. But again, it's maybe a bit of a mislead because being unaffiliated in North Carolina can be just as much of a strategic decision as it can be a partisan decision. Yeah, that's exactly right. These unaffiliated voters, of course, can choose their partisan primary. They don't have to be locked in in the same way that a Democrat and a Republican does. Interestingly, the parties themselves are the ones that make those choices. So the parties could actually lock down their own primaries. They used to be locked down in North Carolina. They opened them up, first the Republicans and then the Democrats. Um, So that could happen again. But you're right. I, I think that These unaffiliated voters are trying to signal something, but clearly their voting behavior suggests that they still are, you know, again, supporting the two major parties, which also may be a strategic decision. Going a little further west now to uh, where you are, Jackson County, uh, Swain County, and part of Haywood County that represents the 119th district. It flipped again this year for the fifth uh, consecutive election. Joe, Sam Queen, and Mike Clampett faced each other. Mike Clampett winning again this year in 2016 was the first time he won. So he has won twice with President Trump on the ballot. When President Trump has not been on the ballot, he has lost. So looking at the results of that, uh, what are you taking away from it? Yeah, I mean, this is this was a race to watch statewide, right? So just to, to catch folks up in addition to all that, right, this was considered an R plus two district, meaning that it you know slightly favors on paper the Republican Party, 
But again, we had this Democratic incumbent, Joe Sam Queen. Joe Sam Queen had raised a good bit more money than Mike Clampett also. Um, so we were watching this one statewide. The Democrats needed to hold on to this to have any chance to claw back the majority. And it turns out they actually lost the seat. There's kind of a sister district on the way eastern part of the state on the Senate side that was also lost. There was also a rematch race. Um, and so I think what this signifies is is a lot of what you implied at the beginning for Donald Trump at the top of the ticket in Western North Carolina. So the 119, we would have expected perhaps Joe Sam Queen to do better in a place like Jackson County, which tends to be a little bit bluer. It turns out it wasn't really that blue this time at all. I believe there were only three precincts in all of Jackson County that actually gave their support for Joe Sam Queen. So it was a it was a resounding victory for Mike Clampin in 2020 in the 119. Again, a, a, a race that will have is having statewide ramifications. And discuss more. Jackson County is one of the ones you always look at uh, to see results. You say it's a bit of a bellwether for North Carolina. And tell us about what the results were this week or the results that we at least have in. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do always look at Jackson County as being a bellwether for the state and some different reasons for that. The most recent is that in 2016, Jackson County voted for uh, Roy Cooper for governor and also voted for Donald Trump for president, one of only four counties in the state that did that. Um, the evidence from a couple of days ago looks like Jackson County may be coming less purple over time, right? Republicans did very, very well in Jackson County, whether we're talking about the county commission level or they're talking about the 119, again, state legislative level, we're talking about the state Senate level, U.S. Senate, even governor. So in a race where uh, Roy Cooper had a fairly sizable margin over Dan Forrest, Jackson County actually supported Dan Forrest. So I think when we talk about the story of Western North Carolina politics, a lot of emphasis is and will continue to be on Buncombe getting bluer. But I think it is worth noting that at least in this election, Jackson got redder. And just interesting to note, too, it is one of the places that one of the few bond referendums that was on the ballot. And that was, uh, you know, to, to increase a tax to um, uh, to build an indoor pool facility. Taxes are such a... Um, a divisive issue uh, and in an area that would be more conservative at least in its voting it is noteworthy that a tax increase was passed right it is and you know neither party uh that i was able to divine really took a stance on it so when you look at their you know they're suggested each party of course has suggested ballots and they say vote for this or vote for that person usually right the democrat or the republican i don't believe that either one were really weighing in on this issue so it passed it passed narrowly but um you know, but also unequivocally. I mean, it clearly passed. I don't think any recounts going to change that. And I do think that is notable that people wanted this tax increase. It just goes to a bit of a broader uh, discussion that I think when as we look more and more at the results, not just in North Carolina, but nationally, ideas versus candidates. And ideas seem to pass differently than candidates do. And I think it again comes back to partisanship, correct? Yeah, I think that is that's dead on, right? So look at a state like Florida that passed, I believe, $15 an hour minimum wage at the same time that they supported Donald Trump for president, um, somebody who obviously doesn't support that policy opinion. So I think it does suggest that it is increasingly partisanship. It is increasingly party identity. It is increasingly almost like a team, right? So um, when we are able to strip the teams from that, though, voters make different kinds of decisions. And so I think this raises all sorts of questions about how much we should be voting directly on issues. So some states are a lot more direct democracy happy than we are in North Carolina. A lot of those states out West in particular, Oregon, Washington, California, these Western states, just give people 
the right to vote on issues more than we do in North Carolina. Whether we should think about moving in that direction or not, I think is a, is a debate we should be having as a state. And we'll, we'll wrap it up this way. Um, North Carolina is, in so many ways, was one of the premier states, obviously, this year in this year's election, not just uh, in the presidential level, but since virtually everything was on the ballot this year. As we look at it, is there a national, can there be a national understanding of North Carolina, or can it only be if you are here and you understand all the local candidates, all the local personalities that are on the ballot? Is it only, under, can North Carolina only be understood by the people who live in it, or is there some kind of national understanding that could be seen of North Carolina? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think if you live here and you experience it and you know the, the personalities and um, the, the, the landmines of barbecue, you know, you may understand the state politics a little bit better. But that doesn't mean that, that folks nationally can't get what's going on here. In some ways, I think we're American politics perfectly distilled. The fact that we are such a purple state where we can swing from one election to the other so much suggests that when the parties are in office, they actually are going to act more aggressively. So think about it this way. If you know you're going to be in for the next 10 years, you can slow down. You don't need to pass policies quite as quickly. If you could lose your majority quickly, you have to make hay while the sun's shining. And that is, I think, what has happened in North Carolina. So I, I think we are really a distillation of American politics more generally. So, yes, I think you can have an understanding of this state, even if you don't understand every wrinkle and nuance. Well, I'll always leave the last word to you. What would you like to leave everybody with as we are just a few days off from Election Day, but we're really in uh, election, uh, maybe the election fortnight since it takes about two weeks now, or at least this year it's going to take two weeks for everything to come in. You know, just that um, this is not a bad thing that it's taken a while and I get frustrated too. And yes, I would like to have an answer as well, but it is more important to get the vote right than to get the vote quick. Um, And uh, it's not that unusual, right? In 2016, it was not until early December where Pat McCrory finally um, conceded the gubernatorial election in North Carolina to Roy Cooper. So we've been down this road before. This is not the decline of democracy because it's going to take us a few days. Uh, We've seen it before. We'll see it again. Um, So let's all breathe a little bit easier. Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University talking politics as he does with us regularly. Catch up on the latest local, state, and national elections coverage at our website, bpr.org slash elections. Now on to some stories that have been going on all year, and with Election Day now passed, there is space and room to give them the attention they need. Asheville Peak Academy is starting to recruit students for its first school year in fall 2021. The planned charter school's founding director, Raul Saldana, moved to Asheville from El Paso in July. He brings more than a decade of experience in the classroom and in school leadership. BPR's Cass Harrington caught up with Saldana at a park along the banks of the French Broad River to hear about his life and teaching philosophy. Now, you're originally from El Paso, Texas. You started your career as a teacher yourself. But I want to go back to the early days of Raul. Uh, tell me what your childhood was like, what your education was like, what, you know, what were things like at home? I grew up as a single child to a single mother. My mother worked in a blue-collar profession. She was a manager at McDonald's. And she worked the late night and early morning shift at a McDonald's that was 24 hours. So she made sure that when she got home from work after a long shift, she took me to school and checked my homework. And so she was a really involved parent. 
uh, always putting education first. She was that parent who knew education was a means to an end and she was always involved. Growing up, um, being a single child, I really didn't have that family structure as some families have. Uh, and so relationships were something that my mom helped foster. So she made sure that she, we had birthday parties where everyone was invited. She made sure that there was a family-like essence within the classrooms growing up. Um, and my education, uh, I'll remember it, I've, I refer to them as the Garcias. Uh, my kindergarten teacher's name was Miss Garcia. Uh, and my second grade teacher was also main, named Miss Garcia, a different person. And we, that was really when I knew that school and the classroom was really like a family. We did a looping process, which is when the class is in the same um, grade level, same students, and we go join the next grade level with the same class. And within that time together, we started so many programs. We started Save the, Save the Earth program. We started other organizations. And that's when I truly saw how special a teacher could be. Um, moving through my elementary and, and middle school years, I really I fell away from the path, I would say. Uh, I started living in the moment and not really having um, a clear direction as to what my future would have. And I think that is greatly due because I didn't have as many great mentors in middle school and in high school as I did when I was in elementary. I didn't have another Miss Garcia. What was high school like for you? So high school was interesting because I didn't have those Miss Garcias um, in high school. I didn't have a clear mentor. And when I joined wrestling, um, I had my very own Coach Carter. And he is the one that really introduced me as to what a family outside of a family could be. Uh, through blood, sweat, and tears, you know, we did everything together. When my mom wasn't available, you know, my other uh, wrestling families and parents were you know they adopted me I had a plan after high school uh, thinking about joining the the Coast Guard I did all that pre-work and turned out because of my knee surgeries uh, that I had in high school that I was rejected and that was a week before 9-11 happened in 2001 and so three months of using my summer to take the test to get my waivers from my knee, my vision. I was told I was not um, able to join the Coast Guard. And so, um, in hindsight, I feel that I was not given an opportunity as some of my counterparts in high school who were had that, that guidance as far as you need to fill out this scholarship application, you need financial aid. I didn't have that, that pathway laid out in, fr in front of me. And it wasn't actually until my mom passed away on the first day of school at the age of 21 and her last words to me were, do good in school. And that really was tattooed in the back of my mind. And, and since that day, I made the conscious decision to make an, um, an investment in my education. So I stopped what I was doing, uh, working, and I used a little bit about uh, the money that was left to me to really focus on school. And since that day, January 11th, uh, 2005, I've, I've, uh, I never looked back and I saw the importance of what school can be. And you have carried out your mother's dying wish as a profession. 
Uh, most definitely in the, her last words truly were do good in school. She passed away the night before uh, I was to start school in that January semester and I remember uh, you know I was there to witness my mom passing uh, that morning at 5.30 in the morning and I had class at 9 and I remember having that resonating in the back of my head I, I, I told my friend take me to school I need to, I need to talk to my teachers in person I need to talk to them let them know I'm not going to be there today and my biggest fear was that they weren't going to believe me that my mom had just passed and here I am saying that I won't be in class today um, I didn't have any more tears left and I was afraid that they weren't going to believe me because I didn't have any more emotion any more tears to show uh, but Fortunately, uh, in, you know, they believe me. I mean, who would joke about that? And so since then, I, I worked on my, uh, my basics. And it wasn't until I had time to reflect on what I really enjoyed. Uh, and I attributed it to wrestling. It was the art of teaching, sharing with the younger generation, you know, wrestling moves, coaching. Um, and for me, that's being a teacher, is being able to share that wealth of knowledge, um, walking them through your thought process, uh, you know, setting goals, um, working towards them, problem solving. So I really attribute my time in wrestling and the great mentors that I've had that have really put me on this path in education. How much of your childhood and your own personal experience as a student is reflected in your education philosophy, how you interact with kids in the classroom? Almost every positive experience I've ever had and the characteristics of the individuals who have impacted my life and put me on this trajectory, I incorporate. Uh, their characteristics, the loving nature, uh, even all the way to Coach Carter, the goal setting, short term, long term, working together, working through perseverance, but also my negative experiences, making sure that those experiences are not having to be endured by our students no more. Um, you know, I think there's great opportunities to learn what to do, but also what not to do. So 100%, all the positive experiences and even those that have been shared with me, um, I incorporate into my philosophy. And my philosophy is in the positive, straightforward direction. But it's always uh, evolving as, as times change, as, as you know, recollections happen. It's, it's, it's moving forward in a positive direction, but it's always evolving. Well, let's talk about bringing this philosophy to Asheville. You were hired to head the uh, developing Peak Academy. Uh, which is slated to open in the fall of 2021. Um, and this school essentially was founded on, on a need in the community that's commonly referred to as the racial achievement gap or the opportunity gap. Um, when we look at those numbers, they're based on standardized test scores mostly. Um, but I want to humanize the situation a little bit more. Um, you know, what is what is going on in the classroom or isn't going on that should be that that would better support children of color and 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 narrow that that gap that that you're hoping to do on your own in your own school building absolutely so there's a lot there uh, the first thing I would start off by saying is that Asheville Peak Academy uh, is founded and based on the belief that all kids can 
achieve high expectations both inside and outside the classroom uh, with the right conditions, with the right mindset teachers and what have you. So we'll start off by saying that um, being new to the city of Asheville, I can only understand what I've read, what I've come to hear by, by family members um, of the community in which uh, we're serving, uh, community representatives. And so I really need to get out there and really hear firsthand from more families, more parents as to how they feel they haven't been served. Uh, but looking at test scores, you know, for what they are, there's a misalignment with what's happening. Uh, research is, has shown that over the years. Um, and I can only speculate as to what may be contributing factors. I do know that there's been uh, a leadership position that has been occupied a few times over the course of the, uh, the past few years. Um, that might be one factor. Talking about the superintendent? I, I would say that there's numerous leadership positions that have been vacant and filled uh, over the course of the past several years. Um, other things I know is that there was one time a charter school that did come into the community that did show some success and that was the KIPP Academy. Um, what I've heard is that you know they had a teaching staff that was representative of the community in which they serve which I'm not sure if that's the case currently with our, our school districts, but that's one thing that we want to have uh, with, our, with Peak Academy. The other thing is uh, more time focused on literacy. And so, you know, we have uh, founded that literacy is, is at the foundation of student success. And so we want to make sure that we're not just focusing on uh, developing students to be academically successful, but a well-rounded child. So we're going to be focusing on character education, uh, a literacy foundation, uh, and a mastery-driven uh, philosophy, meaning that we are going to meet the students where they're at, and we're going to teach them there and get them to where they need to be. And that doesn't mean that um, a student who has mastered something, an assignment, and the teacher just says, great job, now wait for the others. No, that means that those students who have mastered something, we're going to enrich their educational experience, challenge them with some sort of creativity, a creative project, and we're going to work hand-on-hand. -hand. Part of having the extended school day is that we are going to be able to provide remediation and acceleration for our students. So again, it's that personalized learning that we intend to offer to our students. Uh, myself, as an instructional leader, I need to meet our teachers where they're at and get them to where we want them to be, and that's phenomenal teachers. And the same mindset for the teachers. The teachers are going to use data, they're going to know their students, their backgrounds, their entrance, and use that and meet them where they're at and get them to where we want them to be. And that's successful, both inside and out of the classroom. Well, one thing, and having other teachers of color in the classroom who are representative of their students has value. There, There is some inherent racial bias and in some of the flaws in that achievement gap. But also, children of color, statistically, in the Asheville area, are more likely to find themselves expelled or in some form receiving disciplinary action. Have you started crafting a policy for discipline or thinking in your own mind what, what would be effective? Most definitely, and, and I think that's a, a bigger question as to why that is. Why is there such you know, a disproportionate number of students of color, special education being expelled or suspended? And this is just based on 
the state report card you know it's easily accessible so I guess the, the greater question is why that's happening before you can you know understand as to what needs to be done for me and for Astral Peak Academy we're gonna focus on relationship building um, I believe that's that's part of the, the the dilemma that's happening is that there are not strong relationships and again that's not saying that teachers don't interact well with their students but for me relationship building is key you you can't be talking down to a student or up to a student you need to have a conversation with the student and I think that's key for me um, so relationship building character ed education um, you know we talk about culturally relevant instruction and teaching and um, let me just adjust my chair here and so when we talk about that, you know, I think it's it's often misused. I think sometimes I just think about using uh, resources and books that have reflective characters in the story, and it's more than that. You know, culturally relevant teaching and instruction has to do with having high expectations for those students, clearly communicating them, making sure that they intrinsically understand them and are motivated to achieve that. Secondly, it has to do with knowing who your students are. You need to know what motivates them. You need to know their their experiences in life, you know, their hardships. You need to know who your students are and you need to build that, that bridge in order to connect with them. So for me, our teachers need to have the mindset that all students can and will be successful. Set those high expectations for those students, making sure that they are part of the, the process, making sure that they have value added to it. Uh, and making sure that we are working together. It's not just a teacher and student process. It's not just a teacher, student, principal. It's a community process. So there has to be that component of community and, and parental involvement. Uh, so for me, the solution has to do with relationship building and our teachers understanding who our students are so that we can build that connection. I believe that, you know, going back to my experience, when you're a family, you're going to work together to achieve anything and that's what I really want each classroom to be is a family family oriented family sense of feeling uh, that perseverance the the willingness to take risk you know every child should be taking risk and be learning from their their opportunities uh, whether they're successful or not the point is they have those opportunities they're taking risk and they're learning from them well I have to bring in some outside skepticism not everyone is thrilled about Peak Academy coming into existence. Of course, one of the concerns I've heard is, you know, what is this going to do to Asheville City Schools? Or what does this do to a school that's really relying on that per-pupil state funding? Or just skepticism about charter schools in general operating separate with their own budget and their own board. What would you say to someone who has those concerns? What I would say to those individuals who may be skeptical about Asheville Peak Academy is I would say it's about school choice. Uh, there has been a system in Asheville that has been unsuccessful for several years and some would argue even longer. Give us an opportunity to service our children uh, because ultimately my philosophy on is that we're on the same team. Um, give us an opportunity to succeed. We're talking about the opportunity gap. We need our opportunity. So you come to Asheville from El Paso, a border town, with its own racial strife. Do you have any examples from your past of how 
communities were able to empower themselves and you saw that happen that you want to bring here and, and really change that narrative? Absolutely. So many of times schools do what they feel is right by their families without any input from their families. One of the things that I want to do is make sure that our families and communities are part of the process. Um, sending home surveys in which we under want to know from the families themselves how can we help you help your children. Rather than have your traditional math and literacy night or STEM night or what have you, we want to make sure that our nights are, are focused, you know, our family nights are focused on what is truly going to benefit our families. Them being more intimate, smaller, focused, uh, would create an opportunity for parents to be more engaged in those opportunities. Having multiple events that are not just once a quarter or once a holiday, and again, it has to do with creating those opportunities for families to engage. If a family can't engage because they're working a night shift, then I'm going to do what I can to make sure that I reach out to that family, and whether it's a one-on-one. -on -one. So, you know, it's it's really about what we're talking about, creating those opportunities and not being, you know, set to a one-size-fits-all. And that might contribute to, you know, successes and failures with any institution is I think, you know, you may have one school that, you know, your adopted curriculum works well for, and you can have a school across the street with the same demographics in which it may not. The beauty of Asheville Peak Academy is that we are going to be goal mastery centered, student centered, inquiry based, you know, our goal is to meet the students again where they're at, work with them and do what's best for them. And I think and I feel that Asheville Peak Academy has an opportunity to to make a change here in the community. And again, um, we just need to be given the opportunity. I really appreciate the time. Thank you for talking with me. Of course, thank you, and I appreciate uh, the time here. Uh, it's a beautiful community. It's a beautiful day here next to the river. That was a flock of Canadian geese flying over Peak Academy principal Raul Saldana and BPR's Cass Harrington. Applications for the 2021 school year are now open and can be found on Peak's website. We conclude today with the sale of Mission Health to HCA, a financial transaction that may be concluded, but the story of how it occurred is far from that. Nonprofit news outlet AVL Watchdog uncovered many details of how the nonprofit health system was sold to the for profit company. That reporting has uncovered many details, but infinitely more remain in the dark because of non disclosure agreements among the participants. AVL Watchdog reporter Peter Lewis wrote two lengthy stories last month that we featured on our website, bpr.org, that you can check out anytime, and more, as you'll hear, are forthcoming. Before we get into that, we start with Peter's personal story and why he arrived in Western North Carolina after a lengthy journalism career, which included time as a senior writer and editor at the New York Times. Well, like so many people moving to Asheville, uh, you know, we, uh, my wife and I uh, decided to come here because of the natural beauty, the wonderful people, you know, all of the amenities reminded us a lot of the town where we spent most of our lives together in Austin, Texas. Uh, where Austin outgrew us. And uh, so Asheville just seemed like a, a wonderful place to settle. And at our age, we're both retired, 
the healthcare system here in Asheville was a major draw. If you were looking a couple of years ago at uh, the reputation of Mission Hospital and uh, the other hospital systems here in Western North Carolina, well, they were at the top of the charts, very highly respected. And so that made the decision to come here a lot easier for us. Since then, we've talked to uh, so many other retired couples who have, have moved in. And they also were attracted by the health care provisions here in Western North Carolina. So it was a shock when we finally did get here uh, less than a year ago to discover that Mission had been sold to uh, company HCA, which uh, also owns some hospitals in Austin where we were. We began wondering why did Mission, which was uh, as profitable ever been in its history, a great reputation, growing, uh, profitable, what, what prompted them to decide to sell? And as I started looking into that story, so the obvious most basic question is, why did they have to sell? And uh, as I started looking into it, I was told by people, the former Mission Hospital, that uh, they, they couldn't talk to me. And uh, I began asking around to doctors in the area, and they said they couldn't talk about it. And of course, as an investigative reporter, that's uh, a sure sign that uh, it's something that we want to uh, investigate. So I began looking at the contract between Mission and uh, HCA. Uh, HCA, formerly the Hospital Corporation of America, is based in Nashville, Tennessee. It's the largest for-profit operator of hospitals in the United States. It's got more than 180 hospitals. And so Mission and its uh, hospital system here in Western North Carolina are just added to their portfolio. In the sales contract are inserted multiple clauses say uh, they're not allowed uh, the non-disclosure agreements and non-disparagement clause. And you can't say anything bad that would cause embarrassment to Mission or HCA. And uh, these are extraordinary uh, restrictions on a nonprofit, supposedly a public funded hospital. Uh, and they're not only that they can't talk about it for a year or two, but uh, I was just informed today by uh, the legal staff, the Dogwood Health Trust, which is the successor organization to Mission. There is no expiration date, no sunset. Uh, people who were involved in this deal can't talk about it ever. So let's take a, take us through what you really started to look at, and the the story that you the two stories that you wrote. They really go back to how the sale is created. So again, this is what makes this uh, what makes this so sort of noteworthy, and a lot of the things that maybe some people who follow this know that it was a nonprofit system being sold to a for profit system or to a for profit company. Because of that, there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of different things that have to go through for a sale like that to to occur. Um, so take us through that first before then we get to the fact that whom else did Mission try to attract as a, as a potential buyer? The Mission Health System, Inc., which is the organization that owns Mission Hospital and, and uh, other hospitals in the area, uh, was formed 133 years ago as a nonprofit uh, whose goal was to operate a hospital for the benefit of the residents of Western North Carolina. 
uh, and that meant they provided charity care. They uh, basically got, uh, when the tax system evolved, uh, they got tax breaks from the city. Uh, citizens subsidized the hospital uh, because when uh, the hospitals weren't paying taxes, everybody else had to pay more in taxes to keep the city operating. Uh, hundreds of people volunteered at the hospital. They donated to the hospitals. And so it was widely viewed as a, as a uh, public resource. And so uh, to have the public completely shut out of this deal was uh, pretty extraordinary. The decision to sell Mission was made by the board of directors and the executive leadership of Mission. And that's a group, uh, 21 people on the board, plus another dozen or so executives at, at uh, Mission Hospital. And uh, they had absolutely no public input. Uh, in fact, they went out of their way to make sure that uh, their discussions about selling Mission uh, were conducted in secrecy. You, you can't, can't sell a nonprofit organization the same way you can sell another type of business. Uh, because those assets are widely viewed as as public assets, uh, the attorney general is required to review any transaction of the sale of a nonprofit. And in this case, Attorney General Josh Stein and his special deputies investigated the sale of Mission Hospital to HCA. So we went to the attorney general, uh, the watchdog, and tried to get documents involved that, uh, that they had used in evaluating the sale. And we were able to get under a public records request, a number of documents that showed that the leadership actually began uh, soliciting uh, takeover bids from HCA as far back as, as early 2017. And they actually asked for both a complete takeover offer and a joint venture agreement. And this was uh, contained in confidential documents that the Attorney General provided to us. Uh, it wasn't until several months later that the entire mission board then authorized the uh, president and CEO of the mission, a guy named Ronald Paulus, to begin looking for potential partners for mission. So they already had an offer in hand from H. And a small group of board members and executives had flown to Nashville to meet with HCA before they began the process of seeking other bids. And because of the confidentiality requirements in, in contract, they refused to say who the other bidders for mission was, if there were any other bidders. Uh, they have said that this uh, one other company that uh, was invited to a presentation to the board besides HCA, uh, but that that presentation was uh, rejected and uh, the board voted unanimous, unanimously to go with. Uh, Hospital Corporation of America. So by getting documents from the Attorney General's office, we've been able to piece together this deal a little bit more and to show that uh, from the very start, uh, the, the mission leadership uh, was trying to steer this deal toward HCA. And one of the other parts of this that you looked at, there was no RFP in this. Uh, tell us more about that and how that fits into a sale, how is it is maybe typically or traditionally done? Well, I'm a former uh, uh, business writer, and uh, 
typically in a deal, you know, a billion dollar sale of something, you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible deal. A typical way to do that is to create a standard set of uh, requirements for a sale called a uh, RFP or request for proposal. And then to, uh, for, again, a company the size of of Mission, which was a couple of billion dollars in revenue, uh, you probably want to get an investment bank who begin to shop it around to likely bidders and to have a a robust bidding process to make sure that the the amount of money uh, for the sale is uh, as great as possible. And uh, we haven't been able to find any evidence at all that the mission board advising the president of the hospital, Ron Paulus, to do it. They left it up to his discretion, apparently, to uh, invite bidders. Uh, And he said that he limited the number of bidders only to those that he considered to have something uh, uh, significant to offer to Mission Hospital. So uh, it was a limited process. It was unusual uh, by standards of other comparable deals. And ultimately, it resulted in a secret decision to sell to a company that they'd been approaching, you know, far longer than anyone anticipated. But what could Western North Carolina have missed out on? not having other bidders potentially look at buying Mission Health or going into a joint venture. What has this region missed out on? There aren't going to be billion and a half dollar sales of anything in Western North Carolina every year. So this was obviously such a major decision. So what did the region really miss out by having really this sale, as your reporting shows, really just steered to one bidder? We took a look in a second article for ABL Watchdog at the sale of a similar nonprofit hospital system on the other side of the state, uh, New Hanover County. And they, uh, they made a decision as a community to sell New Hanover Regional Medical Center in a completely transparent process. And they opened up bidding to basically everybody. And uh, so while we don't know who uh, was the other unsuccessful bidder for Mission Hospital, uh, we get a sense of who would be interested in similar hospitals in North Carolina. Novant, uh, which is one of the major nonprofit health centers here in North Carolina, for New Hanover of over $5 billion. Um, it was smaller, had fewer beds, fewer employees, lower revenue, uh, lower profits. Um, and so, for it to get $5 billion, while a much more attractive target, Mission, uh, got 1.5, raises the question of, um, you know, did Mission uh, sell out too cheaply? Uh, and consequently, did the people of Western North Carolina get much uh, for the sale of Mission as they might have on a more conventional bidding process? And again, one of the things you, you we harken back to, you said earlier here, the amount of secrecy around this, the amount of non-disclosure agreements that uh, deal with this sale. Is this anything you've really seen before for something like this? And you said uh, some of your reporting that you're doing for an upcoming story found out that this is these agreements are in perpetuity. These types of agreements uh, are common in corporations, but uh, highly unusual for a nonprofit. Uh, in my experience, 
uh, I'd be interested to hear from lawyers who have experience in uh, nonprofit sales to tell me whether this was extraordinary. But uh, it has the effect for, for someone who's operating an organization in the public interest to have such a blanket and total uh, gag on information just by its very nature creates a lack of trust. And you would think that uh, the folks who are involved in all of, of this vitally important uh, institution, this legacy system for Western North Carolina, to do everything they can to ensure public trust that this was a, a deal that was completely on the up and up. And in your reporting, how many of these people were you actually able to talk to? I know you tried to talk to Dr. Palace, some of the other people that were on the mission board. How many of them were able? Were you able to talk to? And if you weren't, what were they? What did they tell you? I was able to talk to uh, actually quite a few of them, all of whom had the same stock answer: is uh, they can't talk, no comment. Uh, and uh, you know, in, in talking with the principals who are. Um, still floating around. Uh, ultimately, we did get responses from uh, Ronald Paulus, the CEO, from a guy named Phil Green, who was Mission's main outside strategic advisor, and from a few other people who said that uh, this the sell Mission to HCA was, was a fabulous deal that uh, uh, people of Western North Carolina should be proud of, and that uh, uh, it's going to transform healthcare in Western North Carolina for generations. So that's what we heard from them. As far as actual comments on the process, uh, nothing. And it doesn't seem like we're, we're likely to. So going forward, what's kind of next? I mean, the sale's done. Dogwood Health Trust is now awarding the money, the, pro- the proceeds of the sale. Um, what's really next year? And what can people who look at this and say, if Mission didn't sell for enough, and you know, this is obviously something of a massive asset to Western North Carolina, if that's all they got, uh, there is no bigger one maybe in Western North Carolina. What's kind of next? What can people think about here as they see whatever comes next with the cell system, which is so entwined in this region? Well, uh, I should rewind just rewind just a little bit and, and point out that uh, once the deal was announced and the attorney general began an investigation, the attorney general appointed an independent uh, monitor to make sure that HCA uh, stayed in compliance with the terms of the deal. And as part of that, the independent monitor held a series of public meetings across Western North Carolina. And hundreds of people showed up for those meetings to uh, express their thoughts about the deal. And majority of those thoughts were negative against uh, the way that HCA was running the mission system in terms of staffing and in terms of overall quality of care. So then the pandemic hit and uh, everybody uh, uh, recognized the, the healthcare workers uh, had to devote all of their attention to uh, dealing with the pandemic. But uh, uh, questions remain. Uh, the public dissatisfaction with that uh, Mission Hospital and, and the other places and the, remains on everybody's mind today. Is the deal going to get unraveled? Uh, it's highly unlikely. Uh, but I think if we're going to get anything out of the stories that the watchdog is doing, uh, it may be 
greater demand for accountability from the people who are running Mission Hospital and the Dogwood Health Trust. Now, my last question was, if you want to preview your story that will be coming out next week that people will be able to read at Avia Watchdog and on our website, too, I was going to ask you if you'd like to preview anything about your story that's coming up. We're getting ready to do uh, the third part of the series out of uh, uh, what looks like it's going to be a multi-part series of stories about this deal. The third part takes at the Dogwood Health Trust. And a lot of people are unclear on what the Dogwood Health Trust is, but Basically, when Mission Health System sold all of its assets to HCA, among the assets it sold was its name. So the organization formerly known as Mission uh, Health uh, had to come up with a new name, and they chose ANC Healthcare, which is Asheville, North Carolina. And that was the holding organization to take the assets from the sale and then transfer them to a new entity, a nonprofit called uh, Dogwood Health Trust. Uh, as it turns out, Dogwood Health Trust was formed by the board and its initial members were all members. And in fact, uh, a lot of them were former board chairs of Mission Hospital. And even today, uh, it has quite a few people who are still linked with Mission Hospital. Um, but they are to receive the $1.5 billion from the sale and then use that to spend up to $75 million a year to address the social determinants of health here in Western North Carolina. Childhood obesity to uh, broadband access to sanitation, uh, just anything that can uh, affect health. Uh, poverty. Uh, so they have a tremendously exciting opportunity to spend a billion and a half dollars. They've got a lot of money to spend to help out on healthcare, And we wanted to find out as much as we can about uh, and how they're planning on spending that money. Peter Lewis of the nonprofit news outlet AVL Watchdog, one of our news partners here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. You can read his reporting about the sale of Mission Health at our website, bpr.org. AVL Watchdog's all-volunteer team includes three Pulitzer winners, and their reporting has been a tremendous addition to our region, and I and everyone at our station are immensely grateful for their presence, dedication, and exhaustive work. You can support them during their current fundraising drive at avlwatchdog.org. And of course, you can support us anytime here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. It's your financial support that brings the coverage, local, statewide, and nationally, day in and day out, that you rely on. Did our elections coverage give you insight and analysis that you found useful when you cast your ballot? Support it at BPR.org. And that wraps up episode number two of BPR News Presents The Porch. The BPR News team is Helen Schickering, Cass Harrington, Lily Knepp, Matt Piken, Corey Valencourt, and myself, Matt Bush. And no matter your feelings on the election this week, take some time for yourself to reflect and to help others. And remember this, something that was said to me within my first week in Western North Carolina when I moved here four years ago. Never take for granted that we get to see those beautiful mountains every day. Stay safe. We'll see you soon again on the porch.